Welcome to the seventh episode of the Cornell Policy Review Podcast. My name is Katie Egan, and I'm the Senior Managing Editor of The Review. Our podcast explores a variety of issues with figures from around the world. In this episode, the Cornell Policy Review chose to hone in on the opioid crisis at a local level. I had the opportunity to sit down with Mr. Daniel Carey, who is the director of the Drug Diversion and Treatment Program, a division of the Northwestern District Attorney's Office. The Northwestern District is located in Western Massachusetts in the United States of America. The district is home to 47 towns and cities and has a population of about 244,000. The main office of the district's attorney's office is located in Northampton, Massachusetts, which is situated about two hours west of Boston and three hours northeast of New York City. This small district in Massachusetts has been hard hit by the opioid crisis, similar to other districts across the nation. While the policy review typically focuses on issues at a broader scale, We chose to focus this episode on learning about innovative ways the criminal justice system is combating the opioid crisis by someone who works in the trenches. Daniel will discuss the Drug Diversion and Treatment Program, which was started in 2016. As he mentions, the district attorney for the region, David Sullivan, has made the opioid crisis a top priority which has allowed for more progressive responses. Additionally, the District Attorney's Office has a Director of Opioid Research and Recovery Services on staff, Lynn Farrow, who established the Northampton Recovery Center in 2017, a peer recovery center that provides support and services to fill the needs of people in recovery in Hampshire County. In the podcast, Daniel provides the most recent numbers of successful completions in the program, which have changed since the recording of the podcast. As of the week of June 11, 2018, 111 people have entered into the program. Of those 111 people, 50 have successfully completed the program, 37 have been terminated from the program, and 24 are currently engaged in treatment. 18%, or 9 of 50, of people who have successfully completed the Drug Diversion and Treatment Program have reoffended. 62%, or 23 of 37, of the people who did not complete the program have reoffended. Daniel received his bachelor's degree from Emanuel College in Boston and his JD from Western New England University School of Law. He is currently running for state representative for the second Hampshire district in Massachusetts. We hope you enjoy today's podcast and we'll jump in right now. Thank you so much for having me. First, if we can get started, just if you could give a brief history about the Drug Diversion and Treatment Program. Absolutely, yes. So I'm the director of the Drug Diversion and Treatment Program for the Northwestern District Attorney's Office which uh, handles Hampshire and Franklin County and the town of Athol, which is Worcester County in Western Massachusetts. And our area of the world, like everywhere across the state and across the country, has been hit really hard by this opioid epidemic. And so 
one thing the RDA thought would be good is to divert these cases out of the criminal justice system. Because what we were seeing is a cycle of individuals who were getting arrested for small crimes, shopliftings and uh, petty larcenies, or simple possession charges, and because of their addiction issues, consistently getting rearrested for those same types of offenses and eventually having longer records and facing jail time and different things like that. And so the root of that problem seemed to be the addiction issue rather than some criminal tendencies. Um, and so it, to nip that at the bud and deal with the actual addiction issue, the goal is to reduce the recidivism and getting those folks, if they don't need money for drugs, they're not shoplifting, uh, that type of idea. Mm-hmm. And so what exactly does the program look like for someone with this type of crime? So it'd be somebody who's um, a low-level drug, is charged with a low-level drug offense. So it's before any conviction or anything like that. It's just when the, the charge is issued or the complaint is issued from the clerk's office. Uh, so it, it's quite the process to review these cases and determine who can participate in this program. Any crime of violence would make someone ineligible. Um, distribution makes someone ineligible. But uh, low-level drug offenses and what I call drug-fueled crimes, shopliftings and larcenies, um, you know, someone may steal their grandmother's watch and pawn it just to get some quick cash to buy some drugs and on its face, there's no drug charge there. They weren't found with any drugs but they may make an admission that that's why they did it or something like that, something where we know where that's the underlying issue. Um, So those are the kinds of cases that we take. So then when you take a case, one of these cases, Mm -hmm. um, what does it look like for that person when they're going through the program? So the the program is completely individualized to each client. Um, so what happens is we identify the cases and I'll get referrals from police departments, from our own office, from defense attorneys, from families, from the clerk's offices, um, and we'll review each case on an individual basis. And if the person's accepted into the program, then we set them up with a service provider. We've got two service providers that we work with and we pretty much in the simplest terms, we put the criminal case on pause and set them up with those services. And so the first question I always get when I'm meeting with folks who might be interested in this program is, well, what do I have to do? And the answer is always, I don't know yet, because we'll send them off to the service providers and they'll have a full clinical intake. And then the treatment plan will come out of that intake and that first meeting with the service providers who are the experts on that end. Whereas from the DA's perspective, we know the courtroom aspect and all that part of it, but we let the experts handle the actual service and the treatment. So some folks will go right that day into a detox. Some folks need residential programs. We've got folks in partial hospitalization programs, IOPs. Um, We've got folks on medically assisted treatment. Um, We set everybody up with a recovery coach, which is um, a newer idea, but it's something the DA feels really strongly about, and we're seeing more and more of those across the state. And the plan 
changes throughout the six months. Obviously, if someone goes to detox that first day, it's a six-month program, a minimum of six months. Their program isn't just complete that detox. It's they get set up with a case manager who will walk them through next steps. And that's something just personally, I think, is the one of the biggest benefits of this program is that the case manager is there to bridge the programs for folks where so many times someone gets out of detox and they aren't set up with any more program and or they get out of jail and the involuntary detox and their their um, tolerance has gone down and they go right back to their old friends and their old habits and use the same amount they were using before and that's where you see a lot of overdoses is people coming right out of jail who used to be able to handle a whole bag and now they should be doing a quarter bag or half a bag or because of the tolerance and you see overdoses happening that way. Mm-hmm. And so for the case manager that they're set up with, is are those case managers from those service provide those two service providers that you mentioned? Yep. Okay. And uh, who are like what are those service providers and how did you make the connections with those service providers in the community? So we use um, clinical and support options, CSO, and the Center for Human Development, CHD. And those are organizations that were already up and running in the area and who had a lot of these resources that we were hoping to get our clients into. Um, and so we reached out to them when the, when the program was first starting, which we launched in February of 2006, I think. So we're just over two years. Um, you know, it was, a, it was a collaborative launch where we worked with those service providers and with the Department of Public Health and with the trial courts and the probation departments and really um, made sure everybody was on board and that's the only way this kind of program could really work. Um, so we recently had an op-ed posted and it said that drug courts were and still are today a criminal justice response to a public health issue and it was... Um, saying how that's a problem because it shouldn't there shouldn't be a criminal justice response to a public health issue. How do you feel about that statement? I think that's that's true. Uh, but I think what's becoming more and more clear is how big of a public health issue it is and what what an actual health problem it is. It's where you're dealing with somebody who's not just Committing a crime because they love to commit crimes, but if you look at the actual physiology of addiction and the changes it makes to a person's brain and affects their decision making, um, there's real there's a lot of science behind different ways to treat that and how different folks get treated in different ways successfully. The same type of program isn't going to work for everybody. And that's why um, our program is not a one striking your out kind of a kind of deal. We tell people are in there for a minimum of six months, and so if something's not working, then we can adjust it and change it. Obviously, if there's just rampant continued use or no effort to try to make those changes, then the case resumes on the prosecutorial track. But um, if for one person MATs is a lifesaver, and for someone else it doesn't have any effect or it has a negative effect, then there's other options to try there. Um, and so that, I think, is the biggest criticism you hear about drug courts. And now you're starting to hear about even people on probation, pretrial probation, 
someone comes into court with a drug charge and they are released on the condition that they don't do drugs and they're screened to make sure of that. And the thought process right now, the conversation is, is that setting people up to fail? If they have these addiction issues and they can't just kick it cold turkey, then we know they're going to violate the probation. We know they're going to fail those drug screens. And then the probation office, their hands are kind of tied um, in, in as far as what ramifications are available to them. And that's when you see folks might have to go to jail. And it's because they're continuing to use. But if you look at it from the public health aspect, relapse is a part of recovery. And we know that folks are going to relapse. And so I think that's the biggest criticism you hear about traditional drug courts, is it's a one strike narrow kind of thing. It's abstinence or nothing. It's just, hey, stop doing that. Whereas we know now it takes more than that to actually kick that addiction so often. For the drug court, the traditional drug courts that focus on abstinence compared to this one that you do have people on medically assisted uh, treatments, who is paying for those treatments? Like how are they provided for the people in this program? It's through insurance. Um, and if folks don't have insurance, they work with their case managers to get set up on mass health. Mm -hmm. And um, through our initial grant, we were working with uh, Massachusetts Department of Public Health and making sure that no one was denied uh, the program because they didn't have insurance and that sort of covers certain initial intakes and things like that. Um, but that's a whole, that's a whole another messy, messy topic where some insurance providers cover certain aspects of treatment and some don't and, you know, one, not just in this program, but across the state, if I've got one insurance and you've got one insurance, different insurance. And we both have the same addiction issues and need the same exact treatment. We might not be able to get it, or it would cost one of us thousands of dollars to be able to get it, um, which is a, a future, which is a current problem. That I don't have the answer to today. But. And so, in those cases, if someone does have an insurance provider that um, isn't really good for the type of treatment that they need, does this program help them try to get a different insurance? Like get on mass health or other insurances or no? Um, yeah, I mean, our the case manager will work with folks on any aspect of, you know, health insurance or housing or getting a job or getting to school or transportation, um, wherever they're at. And so a lot of folks do, they, a lot of folks come in with no insurance and we work with them to set them up with mass health and health and all that. And so if there's, if the insurance becomes a roadblock, then there's no easy fix, but that it's something they'll work together on and try to work around as best we can to get, get the folks the treatment they need. And so do you think that this would at all be an incentive for people if they don't have access to treatment elsewhere? Getting arrested? Yes. That's a good question. I don't, I don't see it that way um, because we don't have any magic fast pass where sometimes we need to get someone into detox and I'm calling and the case manager's calling and they're calling and we're waiting for a bed just like anybody off the street, you know, 
without getting arrested would. Um, some folks, you know, it, it's just so individualized for each person. Some folks know what they need and can go out and get it. And some folks need that kind of helping hand of whether it's our office or a recovery coach or a case manager or whatever it is. And some folks need probation officers breathing down their neck. Sometimes that's not a bad thing. I've had folks ask to leave this program because they wanted a higher level of um, oversight. They knew if, if there wasn't an immediate consequence, they wouldn't um, do what they needed to do. They just know themselves that well. Um, so, no, I don't recommend getting arrested. <laughs> <laughs> just call the office and we can chat before you go out and get yourself arrested. Um, and so when someone in this program has a family that is involved at all, is the family ever involved in the treatment process or no? The short answer is no. You know, dealing with adults over 18 and medical professionals and HIPAA and all kinds of different things. Um, There's other good programming out in for families. Um, I carry around cards for an organization called Learn to Cope, and so if I'm if I'm in the courthouse and there's parents or family around, um, I'll have conversations with them and I'll give them the information about these support groups for families affected by opioid addictions. But in the actual program. There's not an aspect for that. Okay. And then going back to the article that I mentioned before, it does say that many drug court participants end up spending a long time in jail. This is talking about the traditional drug courts. Um, what has been your experience with people that have been enrolled in this program? Well, this program isn't a traditional drug court. Mm -hmm. And the major difference is that this is all pre-adjudication. So we can actually take folks pre-arrangement. If someone comes in with no record, and we can divert the case and keep them with no record. <laughs> if, if the situation is right, we'll, we'll try to do that. Uh, so, this program is also very new, so we've got smaller numbers. Do our participants spend a long time in jail? So far, no. Um, is it a magic program where recidivism is going to go down to zero and none of these people will ever get in trouble again? No. I can tell you some of the people we signed up two years ago already have been seen in the courthouse again, or some folks are removed from the program because of um, new crimes committed. Uh, but what, one, one thing that this does is it, it allows us to modify the treatment plan as we move along and see what works and what doesn't. And that helps to keep folks out of jail because of that probation issue where it, it's not a one strike and you're out. Also, we're fortunate in this area, in Western Mass, we've got a very progressive VA, at least in this jurisdiction. Um, as evidenced by the fact that we even have this program. Um, but as a whole, through my experience in the criminal justice system, folks coming in 
based solely on addiction issues with no long criminal histories aren't, it takes a lot of time for them to get to jail. There's a lot of opportunities for treatment. Um, a simple possession charge, although it can carry two and a half year jail sentence for a first time offender, wouldn't that, that sentence wouldn't be imposed. Yeah, the traditional drug courts. I also think there's some value to traditional drug courts, and, but it goes back to my just my personal belief. It's such a individualized treatment is what's needed, and some folks need the traditional drug court and need to know every Tuesday I have to go stand in front of that judge, and that's going to help me get through the weekend because I don't want to go stand in front of them and get in trouble and go back to jail and all that. And some folks. You know, we did with a lot of younger folks coming in and with no, just getting arrested scares the pants off. Them. And so this, this program might be enough to where they say, oh, I got to do this or the case is going to come back and I'm going to get prosecuted. And that's enough to put those people in that direction. One thing from that article, the drug court article in the Cornell Policy Review, uh, that I think was spot on is about how the coercive models are less effective than voluntary treatment. I think that's 100% true. And just anecdotally, the folks that don't do well in our diversion program are the folks who don't want help. You know, if you look at the reasons we, someone would leave our program, constant continued use is one, reoffending is one, uh, but the big one is they go MIA, they stop showing up, they just disappear, they're not trying, they're not meeting with the recovery coach, they're not meeting with their counselors, they're not showing up. Um, and so just, it's my feeling that when folks have a voluntary treatment, that's absolutely true. That's going to be better than grabbing somebody and saying, all right, right now, this second, you just stop using or else. But there's also the public safety aspect of being in the district attorney's office and holding people accountable and folks safe. Um, and so it can't be, in my opinion, all right, you're not ready, okay. Just case dismissed, be on your way. Um, and that's one thing I say about our program is even if the person fails the diversion program, and ends up getting prosecuted, and then maybe they do great on probation, maybe they don't, I don't know. But now they've at least been exposed to the recovery world, and they know some treatment options. And so whether it's because they get arrested again, or because the probation officer makes them, or because they decide on their own, they're ready for treatment, now they know, here's where I can go, here's what's available. And maybe, you know, we don't get them today, but maybe, we plant the seeds so that they can uh, come back to it when they are ready. So, from February 2016 to February 2017, there were 46 people that entered the program out of 667 that were initially screened. Were a lot of the other people in the original 667 have the violence acts and things like that that you were saying before? Yeah, and let me. I can give you some updated numbers if you want. Today's March 30th, and as my numbers are up to date as of one week ago. So as of March 23rd, 
1,331 cases of pending mm -hmm. and 98 people have been accepted into the program. And so just like the, the original 4667 or this 98 out of 1331, mm -hmm. so many more people aren't offered this program or don't enter this program than do. Mm -hmm. And the number one reason for that is folks coming into court already with a criminal record. And whether that's it's a very long record, whether that's someone's already been in and out of jail a million times, whether that's um, violent history or distribution history or sex crimes history, um, whatever it is, we have certain um, eligibility requirements where there's certain charges that'll make someone presumptively ineligible. And we'll take it on a case-to-case -case basis. Just someone getting charged with distribution, they might still be able to enter this program. Uh, you know, somebody who lives in a very rural area, just a little north of here, may be coming back from Springfield, Hartford, New Haven with a lot of drugs, enough to be charged with distribution, but may actually just be for personal use because they don't want to make that drive again for a little while. Mm -hmm. um, so we do make exceptions and we do take it on a case-by-case -case basis, but the reason you see that uh, big gap between people in the program and people reviewed for the program is we're scouring for district courts every day looking for folks to help. And uh, so if someone already has that long history, if the charge is anything to do with those, those types of charges, you know, um, firearms, violence, all that kind of thing, then that, that would presumably make someone ineligible. Um, some folks, because of where we are on the crossroads of Interstates 90 and 91, a lot of people are arrested around here that aren't from around here. And well, we can try to work with folks in that situation. If someone, right before I walked in here, I reviewed a case of somebody who lives in Vermont, which could be not very far from our Greenfield office. But this case is actually at the Canadian border. It's like right where Vermont, New Hampshire, and Canada all meet. And so to enter that pro person into a program in Greenfield or Northampton, a couple hundred miles away, might be setting up that person to fail, and this you know this program might not be for them. I'm trying to think of other reasons folks wouldn't enter the program. Some folks don't want. It. Some folks um, know that there's other dispositions available to them. They're not. They're not ready. They don't think they have a drug problem. They're insulted by the offer of this program. Mm -hmm. um, all kinds of different reasons. Any, any any charge or record that has to do with public safety, that's still mm -hmm. um, at the focus of, of the DA's work is, mm -hmm. you know, if someone's, if someone steals their grandmother's watch and pawns it for some money, the grandmother might call me before this case even comes to court and say, please help help my grandson, he's addicted, he needs help, you know, and she's not worried about the watch. But then somebody else might be charged with similar crimes, but it's going in and out of people's houses while they're sleeping. And now 
you got a public safety issue or maybe they've got a weapon and breaking into houses. Um, and so we really do have to take it on a case-by-case basis in that way. We used to have strict age requirements because we modeled this program after another district attorney's office, which sees a lot more cases than we do. And when we first started, we had no idea how many cases we would be dealing with. And so we set uh, a limit at like 18 to 30 or something like that, 18 to 35. Uh, and found that we were able, and with the service providers were able to take on more cases outside of that realm. So age isn't really too much of a factor now. And especially because, you know, on paper, the folks who are suffering from this epidemic are the young, young, younger people who don't have money for um, for the prescription pills? You know, maybe you get hurt playing soccer in high school or college, and you get addicted to painkillers. But then the prescriptions up, and you can get heroin for a lot cheaper than for pills. Mm -hmm. uh, and well, that's an idyllic example. It's just so true that this addiction uh, is completely blind to who it's affecting and just through my work i know it affects people young and old and male and female and rich and poor and uh, you know it all walks of life. and have you turned anyone away because of that capacity that max uh capacity that you're talking about no um would we reach a point where our service providers are dealing with as many individuals as they can be? Um, that that is a possibility, but it hasn't come up yet. Mm -hmm. And part of that is the turnover rate, where folks uh, are either finishing up with us as new folks are coming in, or folks are um, either leaving voluntarily or being withdrawn from the program. Mm -hmm. And so this is a pretty small county relative to other areas. What do you think would be the challenges of doing this type of program in a larger area, if you think there are any? Available services. Um, the need is not going away, and it's not growing smaller. I mean, there's so many good things happening right now, and with, with We've got first responders across both counties carrying Narcan, and we've got Narcan available um, at pharmacies. We've got drug take back boxes in police stations all over both counties. Uh, but this, as much as it's been in the spotlight lately, there's still so much work to be done because the problem's been identified and it's just starting to get addressed. And I think it's going to take a long time because this is, we're talking about a, an addiction issue. We're talking about, you know, just as we were talking about earlier, about how, you, it, how hard it is to just cold turkey knock this off. This is something folks are dealing with these substance use disorders will be dealing with these substance use disorders for the rest of their lives. And so continuing to add more and more services and continuing to bridge gaps between those services. Uh, communicating, you know, between service providers and where are the beds and, you know, where are the recovery coaches. 
where are the IOPs and everything else that I make these getting folks the right information so they can get set up for success. That's the that's the biggest issue, I think, as you said, in the higher population areas. Out here we've got unique problems, transportation. I made a lot of folks who don't have a car, don't have a license, don't, you know, maybe they don't have a job, they don't have money, they don't have a bus pass, whatever it is. So if they live out in, in the rural areas of Hampshire and Franklin County, Northampton maybe may take them all day to get down here with public transportation. Um, so it, there's still a lot of issues to be addressed, but I think we have made good strides in the right direction. I mean, this, we're starting to see in this area overdose deaths going down, and uh, not because the problems being fixed completely, not because it's over, but because the Narcan's out there and people are more aware uh, that whole erasing the stigma campaign is such a real thing, you know, just getting people to talk about it so that others are aware, so that I don't know anybody who's not affected by this. If it's not you or your family, your friends, someone you know is dealing with this problem. And um, so just letting people talk about it will start to solve that problem of finding the resources and getting folks the help they need. Do you think this program is important for other districts to look into? I do. As, as far as I know, we're the only, the, there's two county, two district attorney's offices that do this in Massachusetts. We modeled ours off of Essex County. And I know that others are looking into it. We've met with uh, folks from other counties. And I think it's very important. And not just this program, but these types of recovery services and treatment services. And, you know, it's, it's proven now that just putting people in jail because they're addicted to drugs doesn't solve the problem. And so we need to continue to get creative and um, have these types of diversion programs. And what it's really doing is it's setting people up for success. It's getting them into the treatment. It's bridging those gaps. So they've got someone helping them when they get out of deep. I'm sorry, where do I go now? When they get out of the residential, where do I go now? Or when they get out of jail, where, what do I do now? And that, I mean, I've heard countless stories from folks who say, you know, I would spend all day looking for money. And as soon as I got the money, I'd spend the rest of the day looking for drugs. And then the next day, I needed the drugs. I didn't have any money. I spent all day looking for money. Mm -hmm. And then once I got some money, I spent all day looking for drugs. And now I don't want to do drugs, but what do I do all day? Mm -hmm. And so just setting people up and helping them get the services in place and healthy relationships and healthy activities and um, so I think you'll see more and more of these programs. Something we're also seeing across the country that's coming on strong here in Western Massachusetts is police departments uh, taking, you know, they're on the front lines. They know who's being affected directly by these things. You hear a lot about the um, LEAD program, which I believe is law enforcement education diversion, mm -hmm. where police will um, help get, steer people into treatment and not arrest them, not charge them. So DA's office wouldn't even ever get involved. Mm -hmm. So our program's a little different. We're, we're seeing people, once they've been charged, 
uh, but it's something the Northampton Police Department has a DART program, the Drug Addiction Response Team, and they're just making sure that they know what's going on with the recovery community, with the addiction community, and uh, following up with folks that have overdosed, mm -hmm. whether they're arrested or not. Hey, I heard the fire department had to come Narcan you last night. Do you know about the, these treatment providers? Do you know about these services right here in our community? Mm -hmm. And just because the first responders are the first responders, they've got the information quick and uh, they've got access to the, the community. So I think you see more and more of that as well, you know, and I think it's going to take continued creative co collaboration mm -hmm. between DA's offices and police departments and service providers and uh, all, all aspects, public health departments and schools. And uh, we got to continue, continue on this track, but we're not, not done yet. All right. Well, thank you so much again for joining us today and talking about this. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Cornell Policy Review Podcast. If you are interested in receiving notifications for future podcasts and articles, please subscribe to our website, cornellpolicyreview.com. You can also find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter.